Okay. So okay. what happened? Okay. So at work, I have to go to buildings that are not in my office mm-hmm. to open them for people who are interested in renting the apartment. Sure. Uh-huh. And then I go, take a look inside, and I stand outside while they do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I had an appointment at 12.45. Okay. I leave at 12 because I'm very punctual as a person. You are very punctual as a person. <laughs> and the address is a Milwaukee, Oregon address. Okay. But there happens to be a Portland, Oregon address. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> so I started going to the wrong place. Uh-huh. And I was like, the whole time I was thinking, there's something afoot. But maybe there's traffic. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing afoot <laughs> except for the fact that my GPS was just taking me the wrong place. Sure. So I realized what's happening. I feel really bad. I call the guy and I'm like, listen, I'm going to be about seven minutes late. That's mm-hmm. what my GPS is predicting but I'll be there soon. <laughs> and he was like, no problem. Mm-hmm. I get to the street that I need to go to that this, it's McLaughlin. So it's the yep. vein into Milwaukee. Uh-huh. It's closed <gasps> because there was a hit and run. Oh no. Yeah. And so oh. I am like, okay, road's closed. It's not showing up on the GPS. So I'm all on my own old fashioned style. Oh shit. And that means that I'm going to get lost a hundred percent and so i kind of in that area am in the neighborhood uh-huh. just trying to find a path that will get me through to another street powell yes okay that will get me through the traffic whatever uh-huh. i get to a side street it is a one way i have one car behind me one car in front of me and i realize that the train tracks are also closed because the road closure and there is a train parked on the tracks. (laughs) I hate that. And so I am behind there Mm -hmm. for an hour. (gasps) Oh my gosh. (laughs) I was sitting, I was posted up in front of Pine State Biscuits. (laughs) You could have gotten out and gotten a snack. I could have. I watched several people show up, get their food, Eat, have a joyous time, uh-huh. and leave. Oh my gosh! I put on an episode of Potomac, Real Housewives uh-huh. of Potomac. <laughs> Watched a whole episode, <gasps> and was after the episode mm-hmm. able to leave. Oh my! Goodness. I did not get there to the twelve forty-five showing until two o'clock. <gasps> <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah. Oh no! What I a felt, time! Yeah, and apparently one of my coworkers. Or two of my coworkers, my boss and uh-huh. my friend never. My boss was like, is she just using this as an excuse to not... Because <laughs> she's been gone for a while. She's just missing. And never was like, if it was me, 100%. <laughs> but this is Kiana. She's probably just stuck. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And that's how I spent my Thursday. Getting absolutely nothing done. Oh, God, I hate that. That sounds like my day yesterday. And it is fucking terrible oh mm-hmm. well i mean you got there eventually yeah and the guy was real nice that's good and understanding oh that's, that's not usually not the case <laughs> <laughs> right you show up and he's just got his arms crossed like stomping his foot mm-hmm. well he was he was close enough to leave and go home oh that's and good. then come back <laughs> Oh, so he wasn't traveling from, uh, like, another state to mm. check this place out? Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, saving grace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't really a bad thing. I did get to just sit and watch an episode of Potomac. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of, it was a it was a forced break mm-hmm. to just have a little midday yeah. watching fest. Oh, I also was supposed to go and have lunch with Zeth. Because oh he works gosh. in Milwaukee, yep. and I had ribs. Ooh! But I couldn't eat the ribs in the car because it's too messy, <laughs> <laughs> and so that was torture. <laughs> then Zeth is like, "I'm so hungry. Where are you?" <laughs> yeah, he ended up eating without me, but I was so late that I ended up just picking him up from work when I was out there. Oh, that's convenient. Not yeah. having to drive all over Kingdom Come. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'd say. All comes out in the wash, right? Yeah. <laughs> I've moved on. Excellent. <laughs> Nothing that I'm losing sleep over. <laughs> well, hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. Hey, y'all. This is That Broad's Got Moxie. Yep. My name is Kiana. This is Cassie. Mm-hmm. Danny's here. 
She's looking, making Look. sure that we're not no, screaming. Everything's <laughs> plugged into the right thing this time. She's mm-hmm. watching those levels. Because mm-hmm. after that one, that where I had those headphones on, and I was mm-hmm. like, <laughs> hello. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't hear you. <laughs> but I could. <laughs> things were weird. So now Danny has to babysit us because, mm-hmm. like she said earlier, we're professionals. <laughs> we need her expertise. It's a true story. It's the reason that this whole thing's going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's it. Literally, let me tell you this. Literally every Wednesday night, mm-hmm. I mean, not Wednesday night, Tuesday night, we get in bed. I'm just ready to hit that pillow, go to Snooze Town. And Danny's like, do you post the episode? <laughs> and I was like, fuck. <laughs> every Tuesday, I got to get up out of bed, go get the laptop, do my thing, mm-hmm. be witty right before bedtime. <laughs> got my eyes looking at a screen. It is not conducive to sleep. No. No. That blue light wakes it tricks your brain. It does. It does. Every time. But what are you gonna do? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> who is going first this week? Danny. <laughs> I do believe it's me. Okay. Because after we recorded last time, I remember starting the episode with you going, Oh boy, I get a start. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Because we did we recorded two and I finished mm-hmm. and then immediately after our little break mm-hmm. i started up again all right cool you're on it's... who are you talking about this week so i'm going to talk to you today about bridget riley okay so bridget riley artist Ooh. okay now we'll learn about her life <laughs> excellent she was born in the norwood borough in london england on april 24th 1931 what does that what sign is that after aries taurus taurus mm. taurus excellent Love um, me an earth sign. <laughs> she was born to father John Fisher Riley and mother no name on the internet because of patriarchy. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I know her. There's a yeah. lot of them. <laughs> it must be a very popular name from yeah. the past. Because <laughs> everybody seems to have that name. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Every mother in the world. <laughs> the family moved to the East Midlands of England in 1938, a little while before the outbreak of World War II. But, you know, mm. World War II starts and Bridget's father is drafted into the army. And so her and her mother and sister move to Cornwall near the seaside town of Padstow. Oh. Yeah. In Cornwall, Bridget spent time with her aunt, Bertha Joyce. Oh, Bertha. Aunt Bertha. Aunt Bertha. <laughs> Big fan. Mm-hmm. Who studied art and was also given... Well, okay. Her aunt studied art. Okay. And Bridget was given the freedom to explore the area on her own. Mm-hmm. So of her time living here, Bridget states, quote, It was beautiful. There was, in fact, nothing to do but look and enjoy and appreciate and move around in this extraordinarily beautiful landscape. That sounds glorious. It sounds like my dream. Yeah. <laughs> to just wander aimlessly and take in the beauty around you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And Oregon is a good place to do that. It sure is. It sure is. Looking and appreciating is something she would do often. She would spend her time walking along the coastline and exploring caves and shallow pools. And living in this environment laid the foundations of her artistic personality and shaped her visual perceptions, exposing her to a new way of seeing. Mm. So in a 2021 interview, Riley recalls a specific moment of her time in Cornwall looking into a shallow pool and seeing the, quote, colors of the seaweed and anemones and other little things in it. And at the same time, there was a reflection from the cliff above. The mixture of all the colors that you could perceive laying up one upon another in this way generated an extraordinary afterimage. Ooh. Just a very... I can I, picture <laughs> it in my brain and I'm... It's beautiful. Yeah. There's a very specific way that artists or, like, authors explain mm-hmm. a thing that you're just like, oh, I never thought of it that way. That is beautiful. It's so great. Because, I mean, it's just a reflection that she's explaining. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But when she talks about, like, the textures and the colors, and it's just like, oh, no, this sounds absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes me want to go to the beach and just look, look in a tide pool. Right. Exactly. So... She lived there, and then she attended a secondary school called the Cheltenham Ladies College before she went on to study at Goldsmiths College of Art from 1949 to 1952. And after that, she went on to study at the Royal College of Art in London before graduating in 1955. After graduating, Bridget decided to return to Lincolnshire, which is where 
the city in the East Midlands that her family moved to. Gotcha. Okay. Before the war. So she went back there because that's where her family was living again. And she was taking care of her father who was in a car accident and sustained some injuries. Mm. So as you can imagine, since her father was in a car accident later in his life, he did in fact survive the war that he left. Turns out. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Just just trying to keep up with my timeline. Um, So he is alive and he did survive that. However, during the war, he had been captured by the Japanese and was a prisoner of war forced to do hard labor. Mm -hmm. And so when he came back, he was not the same. And then she said, quote, he had learned to live in a self-contained way to isolate himself from what was around him. And so Mm -hmm. taking care of her father through this and witnessing also his deteriorating health put a strain on Bridget's health. Mm -hmm. And she had a bit of a breakdown. She returned to Cornwall in an attempt to recuperate, but it didn't really help. In 1956, she returned to London, but was hospitalized for six months. Oof. Yeah. During this period, her artistic productivity declined. However, she wasn't doing the art anymore, but she was still seeing things. Absolutely. She still had her artist mind, you know? Yeah, yeah. That same year, she went to an exhibition of the American Abstract Expressionist Painters at London's Tate Gallery, And the passion was reignited. Excellent. Yeah. So she can't keep a girl down long. (laughs) (laughs) So she recovered and took a job teaching art at a girl's school in Haro. I mean, that's a good way to get back into it. Sure is. Artists are great. But to be an artist and a teacher and be able to, like, have a passion to, like, share that Mm -hmm. is love that. Mm -hmm. I also think that I have a high respect for teachers. And specifically in, like, higher levels, there's a lot of trading of information that goes on. Mm -hmm. And so I think she has, like, perception and seeing things as, like, her big Mm -hmm. theme to her Mm -hmm. work. And so I feel like teaching also gives that introduction of many perspectives. Oh, for sure. That's cool. In 1958, she left the teaching job and took on a job as a commercial illustrator and became interested in other ideas of artistic expression, embracing more illustration and design. Mm. She was namely interested in the ideas of Harry Thurban, who his ideas echoed the ideas taught in the Bauhaus generation. Okay. Yes. Yes. So inspired by the Bauhaus, it was the message that I was trying to get across or the whole point of it is that art should be thought of in terms of producing functional and aesthetically pleasing objects for a mass society rather than individuals. Oh. So if you ever go to an art gallery and see a lot of like chairs, Uh uh-huh. Like all those that's very much the Bauhaus movement. Got you. Okay. Okay. That's how I think of it. But also that's like such a small portion of it. It's a whole thing. Sure. So interested in Thurban's ideas, Bridget attended his summer school in Norfolk. And while studying there, she met artist, writer, and educator Maurice de Samaras. The two began a relationship. And with Maurice acting as her mentor and, like, guider, you know. Sure. (laughs) She used this time to expand her knowledge of the history of art and culture. And her art at this time is described as more, like, semi-impressionist. Hmm. In 1959, she began teaching again, this time at an art school called the the Lowborough School of Art. (laughs) (laughs) And it was here that she initiated a basic design course. She was very into education. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. She also went to an exhibit this year where she saw a painting by French post-impressionist artist Georges Seurat and decided to paint a copy of his piece. Okay. So the painting she mimicked was called Bridge at Courbevoie. It's French. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's French, y'all. <laughs> it's French, y'all. And it's a painting that uses pointillist techniques. Okay. So pointillism is a technique that uses teeny tiny dots. Teeny tiny dots. That blend in the viewer's eye and creates an image. So it's again, cool. perception. Mm-hmm. Alone in her studio, concentrating on a, a like printed copy of the painting, not even the huge... Sure. The, actual size she copied the painting her aim was to comprehend his mental attitude to think and see as he did quote i followed his mind not his method 
adding, imitating a work is simply one of the best ways of internalizing its artistic logic. Ooh, I like that. She describes her copy as a tool of practicing art, specifically the optical science of it, because it's the little dots that write. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And this moment was likely very influential for her as an artist since the painting that she made still hangs in the studios that she works in. Oh, wow. Yeah. In 1960, Bridget and Maurice traveled to Italy and took in the art of the futurists, like the paintings and sculptures of Bossini and Bala. Their work is very much like curve, abstract, a lot of things put together. It's one of those sculptures that you look at it and you're like what is this mess and then you're like oh it's a guy posing ah okay like that kind of deal sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why we love art because it makes you go huh yeah <laughs> i don't what am i <gasps> there it is mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to think about it you really have to mm-hmm. see it was also at this time that she started creating pointless landscapes of her own, such as the pink landscape and that she painted in 1960 which portrayed the sun-filled hills of tuscany oh beautiful i bet that's lovely yeah it is i like a lot of her work her name isn't ringing a bell but i'm very interested to go find find some we're kind of getting into what made her more popular Mm -hmm. and i think if you see her work Uh uh-huh i'll be like oh yeah okay yeah that's excellent exactly what will happen (laughs) (laughs) on her return to london Riley synthesized her experiences into her first geometric patterned paintings and further explored the optical phenomenon. So this marks the period of time that Bridget would become known for her artistic style op art or optical art, which produces a disorienting effect on the physical eye. Mm -hmm. And this early period of her work does not use color and is largely just black and white print. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I'm in. I am so intrigued. (laughs) Yeah. So one of Bridget's most famous paintings was produced at this time and is called Movement in Squares. So created in 1961, the work features lines of squares whose width contracts. And although it sounds pretty simple, it's very striking when you look at it. It Because it looks like the squares are bending in and kind of moving. Yeah. Which is... The whole point. Quintessential op art behavior, <laughs> yeah. really. That's that's what it is. Yeah. So that's what all of her work. It's like a lot of wavy lines right next to each uh-huh. other. So that when you look at it, you're like, what is happening? Yeah, but it's ex- just It's flat. one of those things where you look at it and then you look away and shit's still like wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yeah. It's literally like. So cool. It's as so a, cool. As a flat piece of work, it's literally changing how you see. Exactly. Which is so interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. In 1962, she happened to take shelter from a rainstorm mm-hmm. inside Victor Musgrave's London Gallery, where she met Victor Musgrave himself. Well, damn. And he was like, oh, you want a show? I have no idea how that actual conversation went down, but she got a show out of it. You know what? <laughs> Good. And this would be her first solo exhibition. Oh, wow. Yeah. I would love, I no. really would like to know how that conversation was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How does one go from just coming in out of the rain mm-hmm. to, you want to show your stuff here? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> how did that conversation go? Honestly, she probably just picked up movement and squares and went, look. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> probably. So this first exhibition was met with great critical acclaim, and over the following decade, she was included in many other well-known shows, along with a Hungarian-French artist named Victor Vasarly. Bridget Riley was arguably one of the two main artists of the whole op art movement in the oh, 60s. wow. Yeah. <laughs> She's kind of a big deal. Way to go, Bridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The year following her first solo exhibition, she was included in the New Generation exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery in London with many other artists of the time. She was also awarded the AICA Critics Prize and John Moore's Liverpool Open Section Prize. In 1965, Riley made her debut in the United States Mm. with a sold-out solo show at the MoMA. Oh, yeah. Kind of a big deal. Yeah, no kidding. And the exhibition was called The Responsive Eye. Mm. Of this time, Riley recalled that on her drive from the airport, she passed by shop windows that had dresses whose fabrics were inspired by op (gasps) art or 
in some cases directly taken from her paintings. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I was looking at outfits of this time and I was like, oh, those are cool fucking dresses. Yeah, they are. However, she was perturbed by the commercialization of her work and claimed that the whole thing had spread everywhere before she could even touch down at the airport. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Coming to America and being disillusioned by rampant capitalism and consumption? Are we surprised? (laughs) No. It's kind of what we do. (laughs) She attempted to pursue legal action against one of the designers of the dresses she saw that were like, that was her painting. Uh Uh-huh. But she was unsuccessful. She was further upset after seeing a 1966 picture of the Who posing in front of a union (gasps) flag in which the drummer Keith Moon is wearing a t-shirt with her painting on it called Blaze. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know the I know the record we're talking about. <laughs> well, she hated it. I bet she did. <laughs> she complained that her art had been vulgarized in the rag trade. Oh. Which is oh. a shitty thing to say about fashion designers. <laughs> and then she also complained that it would take her at least 20 years before anybody took her art seriously again. Yeah. Which is pretty, like, that's too bad. Yeah, that is too bad. Op art's critical acclaimed in the U.S. waned quickly due to the rapid commercialization of the work, much to Bridget's fear, but she continued to have success in Britain. Good. So she was happy. I was going to say, not only is she like, she's like, I'm making this cool ass optical art, Mm -hmm. but then I wonder when those, um, you know, those things that you hold up to your face and Mm -hmm. then you move it away and it's got all the colors and then a thing pops out at you. The magic eye art. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Right? You don't? It's like you'd see at like a, in a doctor's office. They, also, they often had these. And you'd hold it real close and look at it. And then you'd pull it away. Okay. And your brain would like pull a, a picture out of it. Okay. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I was like, am I crazy? First of all, I don't trust these brains. I don't like that we do that. <laughs> I don't like that our brains only want us to know what our brains can do. Yeah. That's... <laughs> All right. Anyway. Back to Bridget. Back in 1967, Bridget. she shook it up a bit and introduced color into her work. Ooh. Because she was only using black and white. Mm-hmm. But she was still using the op art, like, lines, curves, and shapes, and would carefully choose sequences of colors and explore the subtle effects that it would have mm. on works like... So she had one called Late Morning and one called Cataract 3. Mm-hmm. And it's, how, how do I explain it? It's sort of how we see 3D pictures when we aren't wearing the 3D glasses yes. with the blue lens and the red lens. Uh-huh. So it's before that. Very cool. So it's kind of weird looking. And mm-hmm. it also, like all of her other works, looks like it's moving. Sure. And it makes your brain go, what am I looking at here? What yeah. do I need to focus on? <laughs> Where am I? What is this? What is happening? In 1968, Bridget worked with her partner at the time, Peter Sledgely, and a journalist named Peter Townshed to create Space, which is an artist organization (laughs) that assisted artists looking for studio space and fostered community among artists. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And it's still still operating today. Uh -uh. Mm Nuh-uh. Awesome. It is amazing. And it was this year that she also received... The International Painting Prize at the Venice Biennale, becoming the first ever modern British artist and first ever woman to receive the award. Hot damn. Hot damn. Wait, this was in what year? Let me just check my notes. (laughs) It was in 1968. Cool, cool. Excellent. I just started dropping the paper and decided to lean into the joke. <laughs> Danny loved it. Good. Hopefully you could pick up the rustling paper in I'm the I'm sure you could. Bridget's innovations in art inspired a generation of op artists and also impacted many designers of the time. Notably, she is cited by graphic designer Lance Wyman as a strong influence on the whole event design of the 1968 Olympic Games held in Mexico. It always comes back to the Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was doing all my Olympic stuff, Uh I did separately watch a video about the design of the Uh 
those Olympic Games because uh-huh. it was such a big deal. Really? Yeah. And if you look at them, it's super cool. So the 60 mini designs. Yes. The one I'm going to explain to you now. Okay. It is black and white, 1968, mm-hmm. with just lines coming out from all around it. Okay. So it's a lot of close together lines. And then in color, mm-hmm. over the 68, the bottom loop of the six and the bottom loop of the eight uh-huh. is the color <gasps> Olympic rings ah, in the design. Clever. Clever, clever. Oh, I'm definitely going to look that up. Yeah. And apparently, according to one of the comments <laughs> on YouTube, which is not <laughs> a very good source, there was like a museum that had an Olympics event design exhibit. Uh-huh. And then in the gift shop were selling things Oh! Things that were of the Olympic design. Sure. And all of the Mexico ones were gone because they were sold out. (laughs) Because they were so fucking cool. Yeah. They were awesome. Oh, I love that. Back to Bridget. Mm -hmm. An article that I read described her as a fiercely private person, which I feel is confirmed through the lack of information I can find (laughs) about her in the 1970s. Okay. (laughs) Very little. She spent some time traveling spent some time painting, and she had an exhibit called Bridget Riley Reconnaissance. But that's like, that is it. But also a little bit, no big deal, just a little bit. She was named a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, (gasps) which I was like, oh my God, she's a dame. Yes. And then I looked it up and she's one step below a dame. Damn it. (laughs) But very close to being a dame. That's very cool. Her last, her name, when it's printed, Uh does get three letters at the end. To show. To show. That the queen admires her. Excellent. So that's very cool. In 1981, Bridget traveled to Egypt and was inspired by the dynamic use of color in the ancient Egyptian art, Mm -hmm. saying that, quote, the colors are purer and more brilliant than any I had used before. She was fascinated by the way the Egyptian artist managed to use only a few colors to represent what she described as light mirroring desert. Mm Mm-hmm. And her painting after these trip, like her works after the trip, mm-hmm. contained a freer arrangement of colors than she had previously used and a palette inspired by the art that she had seen. Awesome. And she produced works um, such as Ka and Ra series, mm-hmm. which capture the spirit of the country, ancient and modern, and reflect the colors of the Egyptian landscape, I would like to say through her understanding. <laughs> <laughs> through her as a British Very white good. woman. <laughs> Her understanding of Egypt. (laughs) Excellent. In the 80s and through to today, Bridget has completed a number of large-scale, site-specific commissions and murals, including one in the Tate Modern. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. And she has, I think, one in a military base in Texas. Interesting. Like, her work is everywhere. She also has done extensive work educating and influencing younger artists, curating exhibits at different art galleries, and writing about different art and artists. Excellent. So she is in the academics of it all, as well Mm -hmm. as being a creative person. Get it. In 1999, a showing at the Serpentine Gallery marked a resurgence in her work in the, like, zeitgeist. Uh Uh-huh. The Bridget Riley Reconnaissance exhibit that I talked about earlier was on display again in 2000 at um, an art museum. And in 2003, the Tate Britain organized a major Riley retrospective to bring her work to the forefront once Mm -hmm. again. Between November 2010 and May 2011, her exhibition Paintings and Related Work was presented at the National Gallery in London. And in June and July in 2014, she had a show called Bridget Riley, The Stripe Paintings, 1961 to 2014, which was presented at the David's Werner Gallery in London. Ooh. Yeah. She's she's getting back in those museums, baby. <laughs> Galleries, not museums. Anyways. Yeah. She had another major retrospective <laughs> exhibition, which spanned her 70 years of work Fuck. at this time, <laughs> at the Scottish National Gallery which ran between June and September of 2019. And it showcased early paintings and drawings from the black and white period of her work and revealed some of the methods that she had while doing Mm. the work. And it was also moved over to the Hayward Gallery from 2019 to January 2020. Mm -hmm. Dang. And you wonder why it stopped. Guess what happened in March? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
So then, short lull in, you know, mm -hmm. exhibitions because COVID happened. Yeah. The first saga. The yeah. <laughs> Chapter <laughs> one. Chapter one of COVID. Um, however, this summer, mm -hmm. the exhibition passed into present opened and was... And her work was featured as the leading show in a post-COVID pre-Delta reopening of the London Art Gallery. Excellent. <laughs> the exhibition showcases some of her work as her, the many years that she was an artist, but mainly features work from her current series, Measure for Measure in Intervals. So she's still very active. Gosh. Quote, viewed together, these bodies of work underscore the consistency of Riley's decades-long investigation of color and form and her relentlessness, experimentation with perception. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I think it's really... Honestly, when I started this, I was like, oh, damn. She's still going. The perseverance mm -hmm. and just like constant creative juices mm -hmm. that are happening that these artists of whatever kind yeah. right musicians or actors or painters or sculptors whatever mm -hmm. performance go, artists performance artists go for so long mm -hmm. i'm like man i i wish i had just a skosh <laughs> just a little bit of that fucking longevity because <laughs> i get bored way too fast yeah or I, I try to paint. Mm -hmm. It takes so long for paint to dry. Like how much detail you're putting in. <laughs> you have to be patient and meticulous and passionate of the craft. Although Bridget nowadays mm -hmm. does mostly design the work and have other people under her paint the work. Sure. But. Absolutely. You, I mean, looking at an optical illusion for that long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Danny is taking up watercolor. She hasn't started it yet. We have everything that she needs for it. But I was like, well, at least watercolor dries fast. Yeah. Which will be very nice. I'm excited to have a lot of watercolor paintings in the house. But like, yeah. That, damn. That's yeah, damn. awesome. Just to finish up. Op art was one of the most famous artistic aspects of the 1960s and blended with music, fashion and photography and was a key part of the creative hub aesthetic and culture of the time yeah and bridget riley is undoubtedly an icon of the whole movement <laughs> Ugh. so we can just say thank you for the 60s because of let me rephrase because the 60s weren't a great time in american history no they were pretty crap thank you for the 60s art <laughs> yes yes which was awesome yes mm. Um, and today she continues working from several studios and remains dedicated to artistic production. Amazing. And that's all. <laughs> Yay, Bridget Riley. Mm -hmm. Love her. What um, sources did you use? Yes. So my sources today was tape.org, which is the London Tate Museums. Uh -huh. And it was both an entry on the adult portion of the website and the children's portion of the website, which was also children's portion. Very informational. <laughs> Very cool. Um, I also used the artstory.org, an article called Bridget Riley, I Held a Mirror Up to Human Nature and Reported Faithfully by Rachel Judah, and another article called How Blue Stocking Bridget Riley Lined Up a Dizzying Fortune. Long before Damien Hurst drove us all dotty, the public schoolgirl was the undisputed queen of mind-bending modern art by Harry Mount. And I do not appreciate that he calls her a schoolgirl. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great article. Terrible. Especially because schoolgirl. It was used it was written in 2019. She was <gasps> a old woman at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and she furthermore, she wasn't a schoolgirl when she was doing her paintings. Yeah. So don't call her that in any way she perform. Yeah. Listen, thank you. Harry. Harry. <laughs> it was a wonderfully written article. I just didn't like that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Who are you talking to us? Okay. About today. So <laughs> I'm doing a lot of um, William Shatner pauses. <laughs> Danny just whispered, it's because I've been hanging out with Cassie too long. <laughs> it's true. I get told I have, I do Shatner pauses uh, all the time. Just now. <laughs> yeah. God damn it. See, Case it in point. It just happens and I can't control it. I have to, I spent a lot of time just bleh, just letting things fly 
So now I have I have learned to kind of like take my time mm-hmm. before things just come out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, <laughs> that results in me having to kind of stop and take a pause in a weird place <laughs> to decide what's going to happen. Yeah. So, you know what? Everybody can deal with it. <laughs> okay. Danny will edit out the pauses and make me sound smart. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. <laughs> Okay, so today I am talking about Lynetta Warjack. Ooh, okay. So, as we all know, I love True Crime Obsessed so very much. I'm just advertising for them. This, <laughs> why am I doing this? You're not getting I paid. I have a podcast. <laughs> Listen to me. But also, they did a really great episode. So, basically this started because their episode was about escape to Alcatraz. Okay. Escape to to Alcatraz. Yes, that's what I said. Okay. It's a documentary. I watched it twice yesterday on mm-hmm. Hulu. And it is about the Native American occupation on Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I was listening to their episode and I was like, ooh, this Lanada, she seems like a broad with moxie. So, that's where we went with this. Okay. So, Lanada Vernay Boyer She's also sometimes in things referred to as Lenada Means mm-hmm. or Warjack. That's what I'm going to call her. Okay. So, Lenada was born in 1947 on the Fort Hall Indian Reservation in the southeast corner of Idaho to her parents, Olive May and Edward. Also, we say indigenous, like mm-hmm. you and I when we're talking, mm-hmm. on her website. Mm-hmm. And in the documentary, in the documentary, <laughs> oof, <laughs> oof, it's all from the, it's all from the late 60s, early 70s. So oh. it's not like kosher, not yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so I go back and forth between indigenous and Native American. Okay. Because that's what she says. Yeah. Okay. Both of her parents were veterans of World War II. Her mother had worked as a welder in the Vancouver shipyard. And whoa, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> what you witnessed there was me listening uh-huh. and then hearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's welding is fucking hard. Yeah, it is. It's very scary, very specialized work. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> and her father had served in the navy, and we're talking Vancouver, like boop, just over the river from us. Oh, cool. Yeah. After the war, her mother returned to the reservation to raise their family, and uh, her father became a council member and chair of the Shoshone Bannock tribes of the Fort Hall Reservation of Idaho. He represented the tribe in their land claims Mm -hmm. and testified before the U.S. Congress on Civil Rights, Education, and Water Rights in the 1960s. It's amazing that... (laughs) They were talking about, I think we talked about this with (laughs) multiple people. Sure. But they were fighting for water rights in the 60s. Yeah. And even now. Yeah. We're still fighting for Mm. water rights. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Why do we want to keep stealing their land and water? So, Lenada experienced the hardships, obviously, of reservation life created by the U.S. government's, in quote, Indian policies. Mm -hmm. So her parents taught her the importance of resistance and introduced her basically to politics within the tribe Mm -hmm. and externally and to keep fighting a good fight, basically. Uh, So Lenada attended school on the reservation in the Indian residential school system. Which we all know is fucking garbage. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who doesn't remember what that is, is mm-hmm. basically a system of taking children on reservations and just completely erasing their culture. Mm-hmm. And more recently, nowadays, they're oh. finding hundreds of bodies of students and indigenous children yeah. on these properties because yeah. they were not being monitored. No. And so they it was free reign. Mm-hmm. Of the colonizer. And, oh, God, it's fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. So, Lenita was a good student, but was frequently expelled 
and often had to change schools because she basically would speak out in defense of fellow Mm -hmm. students and against the institution. Mm -hmm. She said, quote, children were beaten for speaking their language, practicing their culture and following their own religions. And she was like, no, I'm not fucking having this. Yeah. So in 1965, because there were no jobs or opportunities, educationally speaking, Mm -hmm. Lineda moved to San Francisco through the Bureau of Indian Affairs Relocation Program. Mm -hmm. So again, (laughs) it was just grabbing high school graduates and older teens, essentially, and just Mm -hmm. being like, okay, we're just going to ship you off somewhere. Good luck. Jeez. Yeah. The trauma that that causes is huge, Mm -hmm. thinking about it, Mm -hmm. but also when you consider how Native Americans value their own land as a very spiritual part of themselves, it could be doubly traumatic, removing people from those places. Yeah, from the literal land that they're on. And also, Mm -hmm. the family, their family, and their community, and everyone that they've literally ever known. Yeah, everything. Everything. Yeah, everything. And I'm just saying, Lineda seemed to do fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> based on, obviously, how the rest of her life went. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same for everybody. And to pluck somebody from the middle of fucking nowhere, Idaho, mm-hmm. and drop them in San Francisco? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what? Major environmental differences. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. So she soon married and had two children, but was divorced by 1967. However, in January of 1968, with the help of the, like, other, the Native American community that Mm -hmm. she had found in her neighborhood, Mm -hmm. she enrolled at the University of California at Berkeley, becoming the first Native American student admitted to the institution. Wow. Ever. Wow. Wow, indeed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is shitty, though. Naturally, she was put on academic probation for the first semester to ensure that she would be good enough to continue. (laughs) And to that I say, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) I mean, it's laughable. It's absolutely laughable, considering the fact that if this is the case, I think we should put all freshmen in college on on academic probation. Right. Because uh, that's a shock. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't really thrive (laughs) that first semester away from home. Also, you said UC Berkeley? Mm Mm-hmm. How many of those people bought their way into that school? Just saying. (laughs) And they're not on probation. They just get good grades because they paid for it. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. But we won't talk about that. (laughs) So it was at UC Berkeley that Lenata Warjack's leadership flourished. She recruited other Native American students to attend, and together they formed their own Native American student organization, which mm. she chaired. Oh. These students collectively became part of the Third World Liberation Front, uh, which was a coalition of ethnic student groups on college campuses in California. Mm-hmm. In response to the Eurocentric education and lack of diversity at San Francisco State University and at UC Berkeley. Damn. So all of them, the like the Native American group and like the the Latino kids, mm-hmm. because naturally they were all lumped together. They yeah. were like, you're all brown, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they all came together and was like, hey, um, God, you're a lot of real white people. Mm-hmm. And that's all we ever talk about or study or mm. think in that vein. We yeah. should change that. Maybe just starting with, you know, we had a lovely Thanksgiving together and nothing else <laughs> bad happened after that. <laughs> like, maybe let's just uh, be more true to history. Exactly. So Lenata participated in the Third World Strikes at the campus in 1969 and along with 13 other students was arrested at a demonstration and following that was suspended. She did, however, become part of the negotiation team that helped create the Department of Ethnic Studies, which included a Native American studies program. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And because it ha- because she th- this happened at Berkeley... Mm-hmm. 
it went across all of the UC schools. Hell yeah. So, fuck, I was like, yes, girl. <laughs> so after the success of the Third World Strikes, the Native American Student Alliance turned their sights to another injustice that needed to be rectified. So I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory here real quick. Cool. Okay, so in 1963, Belva Codier, who is a Rosebud Sioux okay. social worker, so she's living in the San Francisco Bay Area, read an article that Alcatraz, mm-hmm. which at the time was a federal penitentiary, was to be closed, and the property was going to be given back to the city of San Francisco. Now, Belva is smart as shit. <laughs> and she was like, hmm, you know, call me crazy, but I think back in like 1868, there's this treaty mm-hmm. called the Treaty of Fort Laramie, which basically stated that surplus federal land mm-hmm. would be given back to the indigenous peoples. Amazing. Amazing. Way to, for, way to connect those dots. Fucking A, man. Belva, get it, girl. So she located a copy of the treaty and proposed that if the property was surplus land that the government was not using, mm-hmm. the Sioux could claim it. So she planned and organized an occupation and a court action to obtain the title to the island. So on March 8, 1964, a small group of Sioux demonstrated by occupying the island for four hours. The entire party consisted of about 40 people. Mm-hmm. And... Basically, they got there and they were like, here's the thing. We will offer you, we'll we'll pay for the island. And they were offering to pay the federal government the same amount for the land that the government had initially offered them, which is 47 cents per acre. Oh. Which would amount to $9.40 for the entire rock. (laughs) Or $5.64 for the 12 usable acres. Well, that seems like a bargain. (laughs) It sure does. So basically, they go, they claimed it for the Sioux. Oh, and I forgot to mention, there's a lighthouse Mm -hmm. on Alcatraz. So as part of their offer was like, oh, yeah, no, the Coast Guard can still come and still maintain the lighthouse. That's fine. So the protesters left after only four hours Mm -hmm. because they were threatened that they would all be arrested and held under felony charges. Of course. Yeah. So that was like, it happened and then nothing happened. Mm -hmm. However, the incident resulted in a lot more media attention for indigenous people's protests all around the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So it just is like this mounting... Of mm. all, you know, they're starting to unify behind exactly. the cause. Exactly. Okay. We are back in 1969. So Alcatraz, nice. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Alcatraz sat untouched for several years after that happened. Mm-hmm. The prison's still there. There's nobody on it, though. There's two people who live on the island, and it's the caretaker and his wife. And that's it. Oh, that's kind of spooky. It's very spooky. <laughs> I was like... Really? That's that's it? Okay. So it's sitting there untouched. And then the San Francisco Board of Supervisors granted billionaire developers preliminary approval to start building on the island. They were like, well, we haven't given the 100% okay. But basically, we're like, I mean, if you want to start coming up with plans for like condos or... It it, is not going to be good. (laughs) Also... Alcatraz is an island. It is. In the, if you have a... How are they getting off the know. island... I don't know. Into into the city? A shuttle, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Hot air balloon. Ooh. I don't... Right? I don't know. But also, have you been to the San Francisco Bay? It is windy as fuck yeah. on the mainland. Yeah. <laughs> Let alone on Alcatraz. Also... I'm pretty sure Alcatraz is haunted. Oh, for sure. So. For sure. I mean, that's why I went. I went for the fucking ghost tour. Oh, <laughs> man. I was like, let's see some ghosts. Oh, you got to go on Alcatraz? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay. So these billionaire developers 
want to come in. <laughs> the board of supervisors was like, oh, yeah, sure. Start making some plans. And this was just a huge slap in the face. The Sioux had already claimed the land. Mm-hmm. Period. So once again, stolen native land <laughs> was being sold off. Mm-hmm. And the Treaty of Fort Laramie was being ignored. Quote, we wanted to bring to the forefront that every single one of more than 500 treaties were broken by the federal government, Mm -hmm. unquote. So on November 20th, 1969, Laneda Warjack and a fellow student, Richard Oakes, led 12 other students and their families to occupy Alcatraz. They lined up passage on boats that would take 78 people to the island under the cover of darkness where most of them and more would stay for the next 19 months. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So, once they were on the island, the federal government and Coast Guard, of course, did their best to cut off supplies to the occupiers. Mm -hmm. But, let's just say this. It's 1969 in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It is the fucking summer of love just happened. Mm -hmm. A lot of hippies. A lot of white people trying to do good. Yeah. <laughs> but also, like, San Francisco is a hugely diverse city. Mm-hmm. And so the people of San Francisco overwhelming, overwhelmingly supported the group. And immediately, as soon as this started getting media attention, mm-hmm. they dropped off food. They dropped off water. Anything. Anything and everything that they could possibly need. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. That's community. Yeah, it is. So the, quote, Indians of all tribes, which Mm -hmm. is what they called themselves on the island, Mm -hmm. set up camp, named Richard Oaks as their leader and spokesperson, and prepared to stay a while. Young indigenous people from all over the U.S. flooded to the San Francisco Bay to join the occupation of Alcatraz, which is so cool, because when I watched this documentary, they were interviewing people on just one day Mm -hmm. there was somebody from wisconsin there was somebody from washington there was somebody from south dakota there was some you know like i was like this is so cool (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) once the federal government realized they weren't going anywhere good old dink nixon actually did something good and ensured that the indigenous people on the island would be left alone during negotiations Mm -hmm. so they wouldn't be arrested they wouldn't be dragged off the island they weren't going to tamper with their things so they kept the water supply coming and kept the electricity on oh okay that's nice which (laughs) which is nice because it was also at the time that they were occupying it alice and her husband still lived on the fucking rock as as the caretaker so it was like are you gonna really fuck with them that means you're fucking with alice why would you do that? And they can't fuck with Alice. No, because she's an old white woman. <laughs> the most protected. <laughs> oh, man. Not the most protected. Yeah. It's, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's been a week, y'all. Yeah. The indigenous people on the island made several proposals to turn Alcatraz into, uh, like, one proposal was to turn it into a cultural slash community center, right? Mm -hmm. Another was just a reservation where they could take the land back and, like, live there. Mm -hmm. Another one was to build a university, all of which were dismissed by the government. (laughs) But then the government turned around and suggested they build a Native American-themed park. Oh, so now, now let me get this clear. I don't know if that means that they're going to, like, do their best to make it. I I I look, I don't think I don't think they wanted to put up like a six flags Mm -hmm. and and then decorate it terribly and (laughs) just like stereotypically and terribly. Yeah. But the the idea of a Native American themed park, mm-hmm. I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" I literally wrote, and we all collectively said, "What the fuck?" Yeah, I. <laughs> There's like a "It's a Small World" one. Yes, <laughs> except oh, educational gosh. through it. 
Yeah. Oh. That's what they were. But because it's the government doing it, it all looks like Peter Pan. And we're all like, oh, no, you didn't. Yes. They just are going to buy defunct rides from <laughs> Disney and paint over it. <laughs> that's the theme park. <laughs> With their shitty motifs that yeah. they're like, oh, this this is something. And all the actual indigenous people are like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're garbage. Yeah. So, the audacity. (laughs) The actual audacity. The caucasity, also. (laughs) So, Juanita lived on the island with her children and her sister, going back and forth to the mainland to take tests and turn in papers, go to classes, but was also fucking back on the island doing the work. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go too far into it because I really, really would suggest... (laughs) That despite how not PC Mm -hmm. a lot of these media people were, Mm -hmm. the it's it's from like an ABC news special or something. Mm -hmm. But it's a short documentary. It's on Hulu. Just go watch it. It's really really interesting. Totally opened my mind. I've been. (laughs) Side note: I've been to Alcatraz, Mm -hmm. and the only thing that I knew about any kind of indigenous people there mm-hmm. was that some of the signs say like Indian land on it. Oh. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like things like that. But I, I had no idea of any kind of history that involved indigenous people. Yeah. I haven't been to Alcatraz, mm-hmm. but I've been to the Bay uh-huh. and all of the Alcatraz stuff is about the prison. It's a hundred percent about the prison. Like if you want to say it has anything to do with this occupation mm-hmm. or that it's stolen land, nothing. Hide nor hair of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Yeah. And so despite often being overshadowed by the men, quote, leading the movement, mm-hmm. Lenada, this woman named Stella Leach, mm-hmm. who is, she's an older woman. She is a no-nonsense nurse who was just... And she has some really great sound bites. Mm-hmm. And one of them is like, of course they're playing a waiting game with us. But you know what? We've been waiting 150 years. A couple days isn't going to hurt. And it's like, <laughs> oh, Stella. Damn. So Lenita, Stella, and other women were truly the backbone of making life on Alcatraz work. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but Lenita specifically is... Featured in a lot of, um, like, news interviews and stuff. And in more than one interview, she was like, we are nonviolent. We don't have weapons. In fact, there are two plastic guns on the island and one bow, but we don't have any arrows. (laughs) We're all out. (laughs) But, like, she was reinforcing, like, every time she talked to the press, Mm -hmm. like, this is here, we are here. This is our, this is our mission. We are nonviolent. We are like, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing this in the way, in a way that nobody gets hurt. Mm-hmm. We just want people to fucking listen. Yeah. Amazing. So things are happening. Life on the Island is happening. Eventually some shady negotiations were made, mm-hmm. um, with the government and, so Lenada was actually off in Washington, D.C. She was rallying more support mm-hmm. just th- with, you know, everyday people um, and fellow indigenous people, as well as getting like legal support yeah. to, to come back because things were starting to get a little a little crazy. Mm-hmm. And she was like, all right, I'm going. I'll be back. Don't worry. However... In June 1971, basically like the day before she got back with reinforcements, federal marshals and the FBI and all that stormed the island and cleared the remaining indigenous people from the rock. Yeah. For what reason? For what reason? For what Oh, so they could make it part of a national park. And that was their way of taking care of that surplus land. Yeah. That's what I... Yep. You... (laughs) It was described as surplus land, and I was like, that is a vague loophole, Mm -hmm. because if they find a reason to use it, it is not surplus, and that is how they constantly get 
the legal rights to fuck groups over and over again. They just leave it vague. Mm-hmm. And that pisses me off. It pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when the occupation of Alcatraz ended, Laneda went on to graduate with honors in Native American law and politics. And that was from UC Berkeley. As one of the founding members of the Native American Rights Fund, she served on its executive board for a decade. Wow. Uh, she continued her education and got her PhD in political science from Idaho State University and is currently a distinguished professor at Boise State University oh, wow. teaching federal Indian law and tribal government. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, she's absolutely incredible. She's like, oh, we're mobilizing. Yep. Thousands. <laughs> yes. Abs- absolutely, girl. She's continued to be a force for change in Native rights issues. She was involved with the Standing, right- the Standing Rock protests, the 50th anniversary demonstrations of the occupation of Alcatraz, mm-hmm. and has led protests against Columbus Day celebrations, yeah. which... Fuck yeah. Yeah. In a quote from 1994, she said, We want the government to pass laws to respect our Mother Earth with real enforcement to protect the land, the water, the environment, and the people. We want freedom of religion, the right to be human. We want our ancestors' remains to be returned to our homelands. We want the federal government to stop contributing to the destruction of the world and to set a good example. That's a end quote. That was very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. The, what was specifically, I got goosebumps when she said the right to be human. Yes. That's, yeah. Yeah. Again, had never heard of this woman mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm absolutely floored by her. Okay. So my sources, obviously, like I said, escape to Alcatraz, escape from Alcatraz <laughs> is an old movie. Escape to <laughs> Alcatraz <laughs> is a documentary that I watched. Mm-hmm. There is an article just called Laneda Warjack uh, by Charlotte Hanson Terry, and that was on the National Park Service website. The biography section on drwarjack.com, which is just her website. She's, I mean, she's also an author. She's a teacher. She's a professor. She can do anything and everything. Yeah. Another article called Activist Laneda Warjack of the Bannock. Bannock Nation details her time occupying Alcatraz Alcatraz, uh, by Delilah Friedler, and that was for TeenVogue.com. Teen Vogue. Right? I was like, I'm sorry, what? There was very specifically a part of my childhood mm-hmm. in like my later years where Teen Vogue all of a sudden was like, you know what? We care. And just started having very good articles. Like, really? the writing team? Yeah. There was, like... I remember the big one that was controversial at my time was... Uh-huh. Um, at my time. Like, I'm... <laughs> like, I'm retired. <laughs> Back in my day. Back in my day. But they wrote an article about how to do anal safely. Oh! For, like, teenagers. And oh, everybody shit. was like, you can't tell teens how to do it. And they were like, teens are gonna do it, and we'd rather them not destroy their whole butthole. <laughs> So, you know what? We will write about it. Oh, my god! <laughs> like, Teen Vogue comes out hidden sometimes. Good for them. <laughs> yeah. Keep it up. Yeah. Because you know what? <laughs> Just because you don't write about it doesn't mean <laughs> it, nobody's going to do it. Yeah. So, that's awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was awesome. Thank you. For, forget about Teen Vogue. That's forget it. about that <laughs> corporation Let for a second. War Jack, I tell you. Yeah. Absolutely blew me away. That's I learned so much yesterday. I really <laughs> want to watch that documentary. It's really good. And it sh- it's, it, you know how some documentaries are like, oh, wow, this is, this is great information, but it's two hours. Mm-hmm. This is lengthy. But Escape to Alcatraz is, uh, it was like a hot 45 minutes. Oh, wow. So, okay. Mm-hmm. And i tell you what, the, uh, like, I remember me telling you about how some of these reporters were just like, ugh, ooh, cringy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, the polyester suits oh. and the uh, the diction coming from these straight white men <laughs> are just laughable. Yeah. 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 I'm going to watch it. I have to. Good. All right. That's all we have for you this week, guys. Mm-hmm. All right. If 
you liked it or have anything you would like us to know about, you can go ahead and leave it in a review <laughs> after you rate us five stars. Way to go. Yeah. Bringing it around. <laughs> it wasn't a clear path, but I got there. We got there. So you should rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening. That's right. And feel free to follow us on all of our social medias. We are on Instagram and Facebook at That Broad's Got Moxie and on Twitter at Broad's Got Moxie. Mm-hmm. You can also send us an email if you have any recommendations or comments you would like to add at That Broad's Got Moxie at gmail.com. That's right. And uh, that's a wrap, y'all. That's a wrap. Bye. <laughs> Music by Sage Krenning. Cover art by Vinny Navarrete. Produced and edited by Danielle Barsanti. Side effects of listening to this podcast may include excessive moxie, zero tolerance for the patriarchy, sass mouth, excessive sweating, tipsy tittering, desire to stick it to the metaphorical man, fear of cats, empowering women, clammy hands and feet, the inability to do math, lack of patience for the bullshit, thirst for knowledge, questioning the system, cravings for bougie chicken, vodka, and justice, and in some cases can cause death on hills.